0: How many of you, you, you lived here, you lived like in the Bay Area uh, in 1989 when there was the big earthquake that hit? Okay, so some of you were were around for that, and I was here, I remember it. Uh, I was 11 years old, and um, I was at home by myself living in Pacific Grove, obviously not the epicenter of you know the earthquake and everything, but I, for some reason at that, at that exact moment, Uh, I was kind of had myself propped up over the back of a chair in our living room and I was looking out the window onto the street and I was just kind of daydreaming or whatever and the earthquake happened and you know it was like it felt like the longest time, you know, that everything's just shaking and moving and all that. And, uh, you know, I wasn't totally sure what to do, but I, f- I felt like I'd remembered some training from some of our, like, classes in public school, like, get under something. So I went, I grabbed our golden retriever, and I went underneath this coffee table that was in uh, the living room. So I saved her life, you know. And, <laughs> and, uh, and then, like, after that, You know, and obviously we didn't experience down here, we didn't experience a lot of the big catastrophe. I mean, like we had, the power was out for a long time and we all ate ice cream from the grocery stores that they were giving away and stuff like that. But um, after that, there were aftershocks, a lot of them, you know, fairly significant. You could feel them pretty strongly, but nothing like the original, right? So I don't know if that's the best analogy for where I'm going uh, with this text today, but it seems like... What happens in receiving Christ is that there's this massive moment in a person's life where their eyes are open, they see Jesus, they realize what Christ has done for them, and they believe in Jesus, they trust in Jesus, it's faith, it's saving faith, and that faith gives them all the beautiful things that Paul talked about a few weeks ago at the end of Romans chapter 3. They get the righteousness of God, which is really good because Paul spent almost three chapters, Romans one eighteen to 3.20, describing the lack of righteousness that is inside of us. He built the case to say, you cannot work for an ounce of righteousness before God. You must be given righteousness from God. That's why we rejoiced when he wrote in verse 21 that, but now a righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Because there was nothing that we could do. There were no works that we could do. There were no ceremonies we could get into. There were no outfits that we could wear. There were no pilgrimages we could go on to. There were no commandments that we could uh, keep. There was no generosity that we could have. There was no social justice that we could engage in. There was none of that that could actually give us God's level of righteousness. It might give us a little morality or a little religiosity, but it couldn't give us the righteousness that God has. But God puts that worth and that righteousness upon uh, us when we simply uh, believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sin and that he rose uh, from the grave uh, for us, that he died the death that we should have died and and, and, uh, that he lived the life that we could not have lived and that he rose from the grave uh, for you and for me. Now Paul used some really fascinating words to describe what that righteousness looks like. Uh, That righteousness is a righteousness that he says gives us justification. So in a court of law before God, we are declared innocent. That righteousness is a righteousness that gives us redemption. So we're bought out of our slavery uh, to sin. That righteousness is a righteousness that uh, satisfies the wrath of God, propitiation, where God turns from being angry at the sin that exists within us, and to him it's so gone from us that now he is completely satisfied with us. So we have like the worth of God placed upon our lives as believers uh, in Jesus Christ. But here's the question, okay, and this is, where we're going to go today in these 12 verses. How do we get that? Okay, he's already said it's by faith. And we already know that, we've seen that a bunch of times already in, Paul's, uh, in in the book of Romans. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Okay, It's the just shall live by faith, it's revealed from faith for faith. So we've already seen that it's justification by faith, we get this by faith, but that's so hard for us to believe sometimes. So he just keeps coming back to that theme. So we're going to look and see that it comes by faith. And then secondly, another question is not just how does all this righteousness come? How do we receive it? But what does it then do to us in our practical experience with God? And this is going to be, this is very important, this is a very important concept uh, for, I mean, every single one of us, obviously, but is a, I think for many of you, if you can get this inside of your heart, uh, maybe for the first time, or reintroduce it to your heart, or get it in there again, uh, I think it'll really set you free from a lot of stuff and will give you an appropriate understanding of how to relate uh, to God. So he starts out, verse 1 and 2, with a very famous Old Testament figure, this guy named Abraham. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, he says, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So most of us, or many of us here, we are like, oh yeah, Abraham. What about that? Maybe that was not the natural question for you. Like, what about Abraham? But that's what Paul's gonna deal with. Some of you are like, who is Abraham? I don't know who this is. Okay, so Abraham in the Old Testament, really important figure, obviously for human history, but really important figure biblically. God created the heavens and the earth, and he made the first man who was named Adam, uh, his bride named Eve. Uh, they had, you know, they introduced sin into the world, and they had, we assume, many children. They lived very long lifespans, they had many children, but three of their children are mentioned in the Bible. It's not an exhaustive family tree that's given to us of Adam and Eve, but three of their sons are mentioned. Cain and Abel are the first two, they had a little conflict, and then uh, the third is a guy named Seth. And Seth began to walk with the Lord, began to love God, respected God, worshipped God, God, and his ancestry is actually followed out there in the book of Genesis a little bit. And one of his ancestors, a few generations removed from him, was a guy named Noah. When God saw the wickedness that was on the earth, that the thoughts and perceptions of every man's heart was continually evil at all times, God made a determination to judge the world with a flood. And at that moment, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, And so God gave directions to Noah to build a massive ark that would house uh, both his wife, his three sons, and their wives, but also a bunch of animals. And they got into the boat, and they survived this wrath that God poured out upon the world. It's actually something that Peter says in his letters in the New Testament that we have willfully forgotten about as we look upon the creation. We've willfully forgotten about God's judgment. Upon the earth uh, in that way. Now, one of Noah's sons was a guy named Shem, and one of Shem's ancestors, a few generations removed from himself, was this guy named Abram. Abram had, an, had his name changed eventually to Abraham, but at one point in Abram's life, God spoke to him and said, Leave your family, leave your homeland. And come to the place that I will give to you, the land of Canaan, the the promised land, what is now Israel. He says, come to that place that I will give you, and I will bless you and your seed, and you will be a blessing to all of the nations in the world, okay? So that was the promise that God had made or placed upon uh, Abraham, at least initially. Now, for Paul, before he'd become a Christian, he'd been a rabbi and a Pharisee. And one of the things that he might have thought is that Abraham had a legitimate boast before God. That he could boast and say, when all of my family members and all of my culture and society were polygamists, I sought the one and true living God. And when God spoke to me and said, leave, I left. And when no one's heart was inclined to seek after God, I sought after God. Therefore, I received righteousness because of the things that I have done. And so here's what Paul had come to an understanding about in the life of Abraham. He says, no, verse 2, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. Two weeks ago, we saw, or three weeks ago, we saw Paul say, faith, the law of faith, kills the potential for mankind to boast. But here's the reason that Paul gives in verse two, but not before God. In other words, because God exists, there is no person, not even Abraham, who could be justified by their works. Because God is not a small deity, God is the big deity, And God does not have small holiness, but God has real holiness that no work could ever match up to. You know, it'd be like if I handed you a little rock or I held it in my hand and I said, hey, do you think that you're strong enough to hold this, you'd look at that and you'd say, well, you're holding it. I'm sure I'm strong enough to hold it. It's just a little, little rock. But if I took you to a piece of granite that was as big as a bus and said to you, can you lift this? You'd say, there's no chance that I can lift this. Because God is who God is, because he is holy, because he is righteous, because he is perfect in every thought and intention of his heart, because there's no impurity in him, because of who he is, Abraham, nor anyone else, would ever be able to lift themselves to get the righteousness of God into their lives. We have all, including Abraham, fallen short of the glory uh, of God. And so Paul is saying, no way, Abraham didn't work for his righteousness because God is alive. He's pure and holy to a degree that makes justification by works totally impossible. It's impossible because of who God is. And basically what you can see there from those first two verses is that a little view of God will lead you to attempt to justify yourself by your works. A little view of God and his righteousness His purity, His holiness will get you into the ceremonies and the outfits and the pilgrimages and the trying to do a bunch of good works and memorization and all of that to attempt to gain the righteousness of God, but it cannot give it to us, amen? Okay, you guys could, come on, get into it a little bit, all right, you know, I know you all lost an hour last night, you know. Okay, so that's the first thing. Righteousness by works is impossible because of who God is. So number two, you see here, verse three, he says, what does the scripture say? So we know, he says, you know, it's impossible. God exists. So Abraham, there's no way he could have justified himself by his works, the things he did. So how did it happen? Well, let's go back to the Bible, Paul says. So he quotes the scripture. And this comes from Genesis 15, verse six. He says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. There was this moment in Abraham's life, he had received like initial promises from God in Genesis chapter 12, but then a moment came in his life where he says, God, look at me, I'm getting old, and my wife is getting old, and we haven't had any children yet. You said that through my seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, and I don't have any offspring." In fact, if I were to die today, the guy who would inherit everything is my servant. His name's Eliezer. I love how he, like, prays this before God. Like, you know, I don't don't know if you know Eliezer, but there he is, you know. (laughs) And so then God says to him, no, you're going to have a son. You and Sarah will have a son. And through him, all of these promises are going to be fulfilled. And Abraham heard that, and he believed God. Not that he didn't waver at other points in his life, because he did. But that moment, initially, he believed God, and it was counted to him. It says in Genesis, it was counted to him for righteousness. Right? So he has this moment of belief. Now, I think it's important to state, That what Abraham was believing wasn't just, you know, sometimes you maybe you're like you're reading the Bible or you're in like life group or something like that. Someone says something or you read something and you're going through different things in your life. And there's this sense in your heart like, I need to believe God in this particular area of my life. I believe that he's going to do this for me. I believe he's going to provide for me. I believe he's going to, you know, open up a door for me. I I believe this in my life i'm going to trust god in that way and that was part of what abraham was doing but it was much bigger than that because abraham what he was doing is he was believing you said through my seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed i am believing in that so basically what you're seeing is that abraham was believing in jesus he was believing in jesus obviously way before Christ incarnated, lived the perfect life and died on the cross, he wouldn't have been able to say that. One day God will come as a man will die on a cross. He wouldn't have been able to clearly articulate that, but he was trusting somehow through my lineage, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And that was Jesus. So in a sense, way before the cross, he was putting his faith in Christ and the promise of Christ. So he was looking forward to what Jesus would do while we look backwards to what Jesus uh, has uh, done. So that's helpful to us. We saw that a couple of weeks ago there in, at the end of Romans chapter three. So if someone you know, asked the question like, how were people in the Old Testament era, how were they saved? If someone answered that question, well, by keeping the law, then you can say, Arr! No, that's not how they were saved. They were saved just in the same way we are saved, without all of the same understandings that we have, but by faith that through the seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Justification by uh, faith. But the big word that Paul is holding out in verse 3, probably some of your Bibles have different words for it, accounted, uh, imputed, um, deposited, but it's the word counted. And it was counted to him as righteousness. Eight times in this text, Paul's going to use that word, counted. Okay, so what that means, it's it's an accounting word. It's a a word from the realm of finance. Sorry about my mic today. Uh, But it's 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 a word from the realm of finance. And what it means is that God takes his righteousness and he just deposits it into the life of a believer. So here's the question. Did he do it for Abraham progressively? Was it slowly but surely? No, it was instantaneous. The moment that he placed his faith in the Lord and believed these things that God had said, he received all of the righteousness of God deposited into uh, his account so this is a radical concept that he's saying so the second you believe the moment you place your faith and trust in jesus the righteousness the approval the worth of god is the wholeness of god is deposited into your life and into your account so that's a game changer amen all right so how does it change some things in our lives well let's read the verses that follow Verse 4 and 5, he says this. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. All right, so Paul gives a few different contrasts here. He talks about a life that is a life of not faith, but works. And not grace or gift, but wage. And then he talks about a life that is none of that, but is of faith and is of grace, or is of you know, a gift that someone has received uh, from God. So what we're learning here, what Paul is saying, is that righteousness, yeah, it comes by faith. You believe in the Lord. It doesn't come by your works. And that means that righteousness comes by the grace of God. It's a gift that God has given to you. So, here's the thing. This is is huge. Because if you're a person who in your relationship with God, you operate in the works and wage category, your whole relationship with him is just ruined. Okay, so the works and wage, it's like living before him like an employer-employee kind of relationship. You know, when you have an employer and you're an employee, what do, you, what do you want? Well, you want to, hopefully you want to please your employer, but part of the reason that you want to please your employer is because you want to have a job. Part of the reason you want to have a job is to pay the bills, so you're also hoping that your employer likes the work that you do, so that you'll get promoted, and you'll get, uh, you know, an increase, and uh, you'll get, uh, you know, recognized, and, you know, more money, and all of that kind of stuff. And when a person has an employer, employee relationship with God, it affects everything. It, you might pray, just like someone who's got the grace of God pumping through their veins, but you're praying for an altogether different reason. You might go to church, just like someone who's been deeply impacted by the grace of God, but you go to church for a totally different reason. Uh, you might uh, give but for a totally different reason than the person who has been impacted by the gift, by the grace of God. And the Bible teaches us that it is not an employer-employee thing that we have before God, but that it's something completely different. We have a gift and grace-based relationship with God. In other words, if it's a wage, everything I do for God is an obligation in order to try to get that wage. That's not what the Bible teaches us. But if what I've received from God, this righteousness, is a gift, then everything I do for God is a response to that beautiful gift that he has given to me. So the response life. This is what I'm so praying for in my own heart and what I'm so praying for in your life. What are some of the terms the, the uh, analogies the Bible gives us for this. One is marriage. That we are in a marriage to Jesus. That he's the husband and we, the church, are his bride. And Jesus is a husband better than any husband out there. I just got to say that to let the, some of the guys off the hook this morning. You know, uh, He's really good at it. He always laid down his life for his bride. Okay, And we then as his bride, the church, we respond to that. That love is so impressive and so powerful and so overwhelming that as his bride, we are humbled in our spirit and we don't take that love for granted. We say, thank you for what you've done for me. I want to live a life that brings you honor and glory because what you've done for me is so powerful and is so strong. A great Old Testament picture of this is when the prophet Hosea was told to take a wife named Gomer who would eventually give herself to prostitution. She chose prostitution over marriage to this man. She ran from him and God spoke to him and said, pursue her. Give her love that she does not deserve. She has not earned. And that love was designed to break Gomer down so that she would then respond in love to the Lord. And God was giving Hosea as an illustration to the people of Israel saying, I've loved you with a marital kind of love that you have not deserved, but I'm wanting you to return to me as a result of this imbalanced love that I have given uh, to you. And so that's one of the ways that we receive the love of God. We say, God, this is grace. This is a gift, something that you have given to me. And so there's a lot of different ways that we could uh, describe this, but it's a grace based relationship with God. And the more our eyes are open to this, the more we're able to simply respond to the Lord in our lives and respond to the great love that he's uh, given to us. This is the way Paul prayed for the church, by the way. Ephesians 3, he prayed that we would have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, height, and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. We, we need our eyes to be open to these realities, the grace of God. All right, now, just in case some of us are like, well, you know, grace for Abraham, that's one thing. David wants to really, or uh, Paul wants to really swing for the fences, and so he's going to talk about David. All right, so let's look at this together. Verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And now he quotes from Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and those whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. All right, so what we're seeing here is that righteousness, imputed righteousness, deposited righteousness, it is radical in its application. Because here you have a guy named David who God called, God loved, God chose, and David was used by God in some pretty powerful ways. He was a man after God's own heart, the New Testament tells us. He was unlike Saul, his predecessor. He was an amazing man. Clearly had God's hand upon his life, clearly justified, clearly had the righteousness of God deposited into his account. But a moment came in his life where he grew distracted and he sinned very significantly. I know all sin is sin, but when you're the leader of God's people and you sin like David sinned, it feels way more significant. And that sin was that he committed adultery with a woman uh, and she was impregnated and he covered it up by uh, giving orders in war that would put her husband in danger so that he would die. He basically effectively became a murderer and then married the woman and tried to cover it up in that way. He thought no one saw, but God saw. And after a while, Nathan the prophet came to him and Nathan announced to him, "This is you're, you have sinned. He gave him a, an analogy, a parable, and said, you're the man. And David, his heart was broken, but he began to confess his sin and he began to experience The forgiveness of God, the covering of his sin by God, and that God was not counting his iniquity against him, and it overwhelmed him, and he wrote Psalm 32 about it. And in that psalm, he describes different things. He describes, first of all, he describes what that time in secret sin was like. He says, it was like rottenness in my bones. It was like the heat of summer when all life is killed and destroyed and drought comes upon the land. And it was like God's hand was on me in an adversarial kind of way. And then I confessed and you began to forgive my iniquity. And that's why he wrote the the lines of all of Psalm 32, but specifically the first two verses, where he describes the blessing of it, the blessing of being forgiven, the blessing of having your sins covered, the blessing of, the, uh, of not having the Lord count your sin against you. Anybody want to say amen to that today? That is a deep blessing, all right? We come in here with a lot of just history, right? You know, during that little meet and greet, we can kind of fake it for a minute, like, we're oh, pretty, pretty good people, you know, but we come in with a lot of stuff, got a lot of history, a lot of stuff, and David here, he'd experienced the forgiveness of God. He dealt with consequences, absolutely. He would never have recommended to any of us to go the route that he went because he dealt with generations of consequences after that sin in his life but he knew internally what it was like to be forgiven by God. So we see here, imputed righteousness, according to Paul, quoting from David, is radical in uh, its application. And now verse 9 and 10, these are very important verses. So Paul asks, going back to Abraham, he says, is this blessing, okay, this imputed righteousness... Is it then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. Now, the Bible needs, never needs me to apologize for it. It stands on its own and everything. Um, so I'm not, I don't want to apologize for it. But circumcision is definitely one of those subjects that it's not like we woke up today going, you know what I'd like to talk about? Here it is, circumcision. Uh, how, however, it's in the book of Romans, and we've already covered it when we were in Romans chapter 2 a little bit. And the big reason for that is because when uh, Abraham believed God, uh, eventually God gave to him this external sign that demonstrated you are a special person. You belong to me. You're one of my guys, okay? We've made a covenant. You're in this covenant relationship with me. And for Abraham and his ancestors after him, that sign was the sign, an external sign of circumcision. So here's the big question that Paul is asking. Did Abraham receive the sign of circumcision from god did he receive that outward sign of his righteousness did he see receive that before righteousness was imputed to his account or after and Paul makes it very clear he received it after. And you read the book of Genesis and you discover he received it after. How far after? People disagree about it. It was at least 14 years after. Some people go up to all the way 30 or 29 years later that Abraham received the external sign of circumcision from God. So that's quite a gap. And so this is very important. And here's why it's important. You are always Going to in life either be a before Christian or an after Christian in nearly all the things that you do before God in your life. And the thing about it is that two people can be doing the same exact things with completely different motives. It looks exactly the same, but one realizes that they've received the righteousness of God before. And one is hoping that it will come after. For instance, in a time like this, we all gather together. We could be lifting our hands, praising God, rejoicing over Him. And you could have one person who is hoping that after that, God will then do something kind for them, some kind of blessing for them. That they'll receive some kind of approval and worth and righteousness from God as a result of this worship. And then you have others who realize they've already got it. They walked here, walked in here with it by the blood of Jesus and by faith. And so they're lifting their hands in the very same way, singing in the very same way as a response to what the Lord has done for them. It's a before and after kind of thing. When we personally pray before God, there's a way to pray where you understand I have all of this because of what Christ has done for me. And I want to go to my Father in heaven. I want to relate to my Father in heaven. I want to express my dependence upon my Father in heaven. And then there's a way to come to the Lord. It looks very similar, but to where you're coming to the Lord and you're trying to earn the righteousness of God into your life. God, it's been 15 minutes that I've been here on my knees with my eyes closed. I hope you're seeing this kind of thing right that kind of perspective it gets into just everything that we do and so the question of course is are you an after person or are you a before person and to be a uh, after person to believe that the righteousness and the blessings and the approval of God comes after it's a very difficult life before God But to be a before person actually is one of the most powerful kind of lives that you could ever live. Because when you have the after mentality, the shelf life on that is only so long. Burnout is in your future. But when you have the before thing, where you know I received the righteousness of God before I ever did anything for the Lord. When you hear the Father speaking over the Son at his baptism, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Before any miracles, before any sermons, before any raising of the dead, before any leprosies cured, before any sermon on the mount, before any disciples, before any cross, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased he's got it, he has my righteousness, he has my worth, my pleasure is upon him. When you can get to that place in your heart where it's by faith that was mine completely, it sets you free. That's what we saw a few months ago in Titus chapter two. That the grace of God has appeared and it eventually turns us into a people who are zealous for good works. And that's a life that has some staying power to it. Not that there won't be times of difficulty, but when you can become a before person rather than an after person, where you realize you receive the righteousness of God before doing anything for Him or any outward sign, it's electrifying, I think, to your heart and to your life. So it's a timeline thing, is basically what Paul is saying. It's a timeline thing, which is helpful because earlier he said the one who works, and he kind of downplayed that. And someone might think, does that mean that I'm never obedient to God? No, not at all. If your father did that for you, wouldn't you want to follow your father? All right, so that's what he's announcing here. All right, let's close out this time together. Verse 11 and 12. The question is then, all right, well then what is, was circumcision all about anyways? So he says, verse 11 and 12, he says, he, Abraham, received the sign of circumcision, verse 11, as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose, so why why did he receive that while he was still uncircumcised? The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. So in a sense, what Paul is saying is, he's saying, hey, Abraham received the righteousness of God when he was still a Gentile. So he's the father of faith for everyone, not just the Jew, but also the Gentile, right? Because he received righteousness of God way before he ever had anything that was Jewish given to him by God. And then he also says, verse 12, not only, you know, us, so we're connected to Abraham. If you're not a a Jew and you're a believer this morning, he says, you know, you're connected to Abraham, but also, verse 12, to make him, Abraham, the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So just because someone in the Old Testament era had all the rites and the ceremonies doesn't mean that they had a legit righteousness given to them by God. He says, no, Abraham's the father of them who are not merely circumcised. So they have it, but not just that, they also walk, he says, in the footsteps of the faith. So like one of my favorite books of the Bible is Ezra. Ezra was a scribe. Ezra was a, uh, a priest. Uh, Ezra was a powerful man of God. He had all the ceremonies. He had all the external stuff. He wore all the outfits. But you know what he was really? He had all that. But he was walking in the footsteps of faith that Abraham initiated. And there were plenty who hadn't, but people like Ezra and others like him had. And that's what it takes. No matter where you are, before or after the cross of Christ, it it comes, righteousness comes by faith in Jesus Christ. So here he's just saying, well, the circumcision, the sign of it, the seal of it, it's just an outward sign that is a seal of your inner Righteousness. So we want that in our lives, don't we? You know, on Easter Sunday, we're going to see people get water baptized, and uh, it'll be beautiful. Uh, You know, Lord willing, we'll see some people get baptized, and it'll be beautiful. And what do we want that to be? Does that is that saving anybody? No, not at all. That's a reaction to the internal thing that Christ has done. It's a sign of something inner that the Lord has done inside of their lives. So this is really good news that God is giving to us, amen, and it's an honor to be able to study it. Lord, we thank you so much, and um, I just know, Lord, that in my heart what I've wanted to pray today is um, for your church, that we as a people, that we would get this, Lord, inside of our hearts more than ever that we would see the order of things. That before we did anything for you, before we shared our faith with someone that we loved, before we served in your house, before we gave, before we loved and cared, before we expressed mercy, before we did any of these things, you, Lord, by faith imputed, deposited righteousness into our account. And Father, I just pray and ask that that reality would grow strong inside of every heart that's represented here today. Every person that would ever hear this particular message and text, Lord, that there would be a just fame of Christ that grows inside of that heart, of that hearer. And Lord, that we would be set free from the performance thing, doing such and such to get the righteousness of God, the worth of God, the approval, the favor of God. But Lord, that we would be responding to that which has already been given to us in Christ Jesus. So we pray, Father, for your great help in that. And even just saying your name, God, calling you Father, it's just so clear. We're in. We're in your family. You've adopted us. You've made us your sons and daughters. And we cry out to you as Father. That position, it does not change before you. And for that, we are so thankful. So, Lord, we love you and we praise you. And maybe this morning you have yet to really. Uh, believe in Jesus and to place your trust in him and you need to know that he will judge the living and the dead and and he will basically judge on whether a person has opened their heart in faith to the work that he performed for them and so the good news for you is that he lived a life you'd never live and he died in your place upon the cross and rose from the grave and if you want to trust him for that forgiveness and that righteousness, just right now in your heart, cry out to him and say, God have mercy upon me, a sinner. Thank you, Father, for sending Jesus to die in my place. I repent of this sin of mine and I give it to you and I thank you that Jesus died on the cross for it. Come into my life and help me now to live a life for you and so father we thank you and we rejoice lord in you this morning you're so good to us and we now lord want to celebrate you and rejoice over you we thank you lord we bless lord your holy name in jesus name amen